But when she married Crown Prince uh, Naruhito, she became Princess Masako. And through the ascension of her husband to the Chrysanthemum throne, she has now become Empress Masako, as you know. From commoner to empress, her life, her position in life has dramatically changed. And so she's expected to live a life worthy of her calling. You can just race through those slides. There she is as a princess and now an empress. Her life has changed, as you know. And it's no different for us as Christians. Paul in Ephesians 2, earlier in this letter, he explains our position. We were dead to God. Enemies, can you believe it? Enemies of God in our hearts. But, but now we've been adopted as God's children. Now we're members of God's family. And so we call the creator God Father. We are now royalty. And we receive honorific titles like sons of God, daughters of God, temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is who we are. From object of wrath to dearly loved sons and daughters, our position in life has dramatically changed. And so Paul writes in chapter 4 to tell us how everything has changed. He writes in verse 1, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. We're commanded to live a life worthy of our new position because becoming a Christian, it changes everything about who we are, how we see the world, how we relate to people. And so Paul writes to exhort us, to urge us to live in a way that fits with who we are, our new status as God's children. We're not born into this position. We don't earn the right to be called sons and daughters of God. This is a position that has been gifted to us, given to us by God. And so we're to respond in the way in which we live. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What is the calling? Of the Christian? What is the calling that God has placed on each of our lives as we've come to Him? If you open your Bible, if you have a Bible there, I'd like you to look at Romans, Romans 8, where it describes very specifically the calling that God has placed on our lives. I'll read it for you if you don't have a copy. What is the calling? Romans 8, verse 28 and 29. And we know that those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness 
of his son. The image of his son. That is our calling. That is who you are to become. We are to become the image of God, the likeness of God, the reflection of God in this world. When people meet you, they're supposed to sort of scratch their heads. Pastor Jeff, you remind me of someone. I know, you remind me of Jesus. That's who. That's how we are to live. That's what we're to become. That's who people see when they meet us. They meet Jesus. That's our calling. And so what comes next? In Ephesians chapter 4. What would you say is the life that reflects Jesus? That's what Paul talks about. And he starts with relationships. It starts, first of all, with relationships in the church, in God's family. And so he writes, verse 2, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. To live a life worthy of the call is to be humble. Think about humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance, first of all, towards your Christian brothers and sisters. Now, you probably don't need me to remind you, but relationships in any family, they are hard work, aren't they? Yes, they are. This is not easy. Any family with brothers and sisters knows relationships and family life is hard work. It's not natural. That's what we need to understand, first of all. This is not natural to our sinful selves. It takes work, really hard work, to be humble and gentle, patient and loving. It's not our default position. It's not natural for us to do these things. And so we have to work, we have to work at it. The practices and habits of living together in harmony towards humility and patience and genuine love, it's hard. It is really hard work. But it's hard work that we have to do as Christians because this is the calling that's been placed on all our lives. And it's very, very easy, I think, for us to open the Bible and we get to a list of things that God wants us to do and we skip over it and we don't pay attention closely to what it's saying. It's just too easy to, to go over it. But I want us to sit here in this verse today, particularly this verse, and think about this for ourselves because it does take hard work and I want you to do the hard work of thinking about how you cultivate and grow these qualities in your life and in your relationships that you might be Christ-like. Well, what do these four qualities really mean? Shimon, can we have that slide that shows that list of four, just so it's in front of us, just so we can see it and be reminded? 
It begins with humility. To be humble means to to lower yourselves, to think lowly of yourselves. We're not talking about a false modesty here, a false humility, but a motivation that's truly servant-hearted. And so you put yourself down, you lower yourself. Paul talks about it in Philippians 2. He says, think of others as better than yourselves. Wow, that's radical, isn't it, already for us? That's difficult to think of others before we think of ourselves, to think of others as better, to put ourselves in a lowly position. Not with humble words, but humble actions. Christ became a servant. He did not grasp his rights as God, but he humbled himself for the good of others. And that is at the heart of humility. Not false humility, not false words, but that we lower ourselves for the real working of the good of others. Paul holds up uh, an example of true humility to the Philippian church. He writes of Epaphroditus. Now, we don't know much about Epaphroditus, but he is held up for us in Scripture as a man to imitate because he was a man after God's heart and he was a man who followed Christ. This is what Paul writes of Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2. He writes, Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honour such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service. We don't know much about Epaphroditus, but we know this. He nearly died for the sake of the gospel. Perhaps it was exhaustion, perhaps it was exposure to the elements as he travelled with Paul, sharing in the ministry. Perhaps he spent time in prison with Paul. We don't really know what it is, but regardless, Epaphroditus risked his life and almost died in the service of the gospel and in the service of Paul. He esteemed Paul's life better than his own. He regarded his life as expendable for the sake of the gospel. And that is humility. The sacrificial service of others. Secondly, Paul writes that we shouldn't be only humble, but we should also be gentle. But don't confuse gentleness with weakness. In the Greek, the word that is translated here as gentle is the same word that's used of Jesus in Matthew 21. Speaking of Jesus, Matthew writes, and he's quoting the Old Testament, See your king comes gentle, riding on a donkey. Jesus is the king who is described as gentle. No one can say Jesus was not powerful. He commanded the weather. He commanded the spirits and demons. He even commanded death when he demanded, 
or, or uh, commanded Lazarus to rise from the tomb. In what sense are we to be gentle? How does gentleness work in the Bible? Gentleness is not weakness. It is controlled strength. It is taking your strength and harnessing that and controlling that and limiting that and applying that for the care of others. Gentleness is about using your strength to care for others. Thirdly, we're to be patient. Patience is a word in the New Testament that is always associated with suffering. And Christians are constantly being told to be patient and endure suffering for Christ, reluctant to avenge wrongs. Now, when you think about it, Paul's writing to this Christian community in Ephesus and he's telling them they need humility and gentleness, but they're also requiring patience to endure suffering. He's talking about Christian family and he's being told that they'll have to endure suffering within the Christian family. It sounds a bit surprising, doesn't it? Unusual. But really it shouldn't be any surprise to us because too often this is our experience of family life, isn't it? We are sinful people. And although we love our families, we do suffer sometimes from friendly fire, don't we? And so if we're going to make our Christian community work, any family work, what are we going to do when we're hurt by other Christians? When we suffer because of the sin of other people? Well, to be part of a Christian family means we need to exercise patience and certainly not seek to avenge the wrongs that are done against us. Rather, as Peter writes, he says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you are called so that you may inherit blessing. Think about what hard work this is. You know, when you are wronged, when you are slighted in some way, what is your natural response? What do you want to do? Usually humans respond in one of two ways. We fight or we withdraw. We fight or we flight. We want to stand up for ourselves. We want to push back. Or we shrink away and we retreat and we give each other the silent treatment. It's passive-aggressive. But it's still aggressive. That's not patience. (laughs) If we're going to live a life worthy of Christ, we're going to need 
to think about how we handle conflict situations. Not with fight and not with flight either. Not with aggression, active or passive. We're going to need to work at actually resolving conflict with patience. Patience. Exercising patience, not seeking to avenge wrongs against us. And more than that, we're to repay evil with blessing. We're to bless those who wrong us, actually seek the good of others who wrong us. And it's difficult because exercising patience, it requires forgiveness. But the great thing is it will free our hearts from hatred. I think one of, I'm just thinking, one of the great challenges I have had throughout my Christian life, I remember as a young Christian, um, there, was a, there was a man in my life who, he wasn't directly hurting me, but friends around me, he was a terrible abuser and he took advantage of people. And he hurt a lot of people, a lot of friends. And I found hatred, you know, seeded in my life towards him. And he, he was a Christian brother. And I found myself wanting to hate him. I found myself wanting, well, wishing harm upon him. And I realised, as I sat quietly praying on my own, that this is not how God wanted me to live and respond to this man. And I realised in reading this verse that what I had to do was start praying for him. I didn't have to cultivate a relationship with him and become best friends, but I started to pray for him, to seek his blessing, to ask for God to do good things in his life. And I think that's a great place for any of us to start when we feel that we have that seed of hatred planted in us, that distaste or dislike for others, to start to pray for them. And it's something that I don't think we ever learn once. It's something that we have to do again and again throughout our lives. Well, finally, to bear with one another in love. We are to bear with one another in love. While humility means lowering ourselves, bearing with one another in love means to carry the weight of others, to lift them up, tolerating differences and faults, knowing that we have our faults of our own. A life worthy of the calling we've received to live like Jesus is to embody Jesus, we're to be just like Jesus in the way we relate to others. For this is how Jesus relates to us. He humbled himself to die in our place. He used his strength to care for us. He endured unjust suffering patiently in our place to bring us God's forgiveness, to bring us to God. And we all know, don't we, just how God tolerates us how patient he is with each one of us. When we sin, how does Jesus respond to you when you sin? He stands before the Father 
and he stands in your defence. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the whole world. He stands in our defence. He doesn't get aggressive towards us. He doesn't fly from us. He remains close and he stands in our defence when we sin. This is what it means. This is what it looks like to live a life worthy of our calling as God's children. And if you look down at verse 13, Paul starts to talk about how we can do this because we need help to do this. It's hard. And he clearly explains that if we're going to develop this in each of our lives individually, then we need to do it together in unity. The goal is, in verse 13, that we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure and fullness of Christ. Our unity, our fellowship is a key to making this happen, to our maturity. Our Christ-likeness, And our unity as God's people is linked. We grow up and we become mature. How? By growing together, only growing together. And so Paul writes in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort, Christian. With determination, with resolve, keep the unity of the Spirit that has been gifted to you. God has given us unity and it's with great determination, great effort that we are to keep unified. We do not give up. Even as we are hurt, even as people slight us, we do not give up. We make every effort. We know that it's not easy for churches to remain unified. A great problem, the great problem with churches is they're full of people like us. People like me, sinful people. And we have different preferences for music and and we have problems with relationships and we have different theological ideas and different family backgrounds and different cultures. And it is really complex to stay together. And this describes the church in Ephesus. They knew this well. They were a church of Gentiles and Jews unified in Christ with vastly different cultures, vastly different families, different backgrounds, different beliefs. Historically, they were enemies, Jews and Gentiles. They had nothing to do with each other. And now in Christ, they are one family. They are unified and they're to remain unified. Why? Why does God do this? Why does God want us, why does God want us to do this? Why should they remain unified? Why should we? It's there in verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We are one. You cannot miss that word in this verse. We are one, serving one Lord. We share a common faith in the Lord, a faith that is demonstrated by our baptism, 
Baptism which symbolises not only our belonging to the Lord, but our baptism symbolises a belonging to one another, that we are members of a family. It has those two aspects. When you are baptised, you are baptised not only showing you are linked to Christ, but you belong in a family. So we do that. It's important. Unity is difficult in families, isn't it? I've been married to Michelle for 24 years, I want to say. I hope that's the right number. I love Michelle, but sometimes we argue loudly. If she would just agree with me all the time, life would be just... So much more peaceful. But we both have our own minds. And so we have to work hard. And we have to make every effort to be unified at being humble and gentle with each other. Patient and tolerant of each other's differences. In Christ, Christians are also family. And we need to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And helpfully, Jesus gives us the resources, the support, the help to do this. That we might maintain this unity and grow to maturity. Have a look in verse 11 at the resources that God gives us. These are the gifts of Christ. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the pastor teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. When Jesus ascended to heaven following his resurrection, he gave spiritual gifts to his people. What are the gifts that God gives to his people? to maintain unity and grow us to maturity, looking at verse 11, these gifts are leaders. These gifts are people. We might have expected Paul to write about gifts given to each individual Christian, abilities, but he doesn't do that. He gives us a list of people. These are the gifts that God gives for the blessing of the church, for the growth of the church. These people are God's gifts to equip and strengthen and build the church until we reach unity and maturity. Now, who are these people? Looking at this list, prophets and apostles. These are the men who laid the foundation of the church. They are the ones to whom God spoke and God revealed himself. They are the men who have given us the Bible, the men and women. They are the prophets and the apostles. They have spoken God's words for us to believe and obey. And it's through their work we know the truth about God and what he requires. They've given us the good news, the gospel. And this is what the evangelists take. And they build on the work of the apostles and prophets. And they carry the gospel and this good news and this message of God to people who have not heard it before. They're missionaries. Not missionaries in the sense that they move to another country, they may do that, but they're missionaries in the sense that they take 
The good news of Jesus to their schools and their workplaces and their communities, their sports clubs, their families, any place where God is not known. God grows his church through the apostles and prophets. The evangelists carry their messages. And then pastor teachers. That's one, that's one person, not pastor and teacher. In Greek, it is one person. The pastor teacher is the person who protects and nurtures and cares for the Christian community. Notice that all these gifts are not given for the benefit of those people themselves, the gifted. They are given, according to verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built. The work of evangelists and and pastor teachers is not to do the work of the church. They're to equip the church for ministry. It's not Pastor Claudia's work to do the work of your church. Rather, through her ministry, you are equipped to do the work of the church. It's not my role to do the work of young life. Rather, it's through my leadership that together with parents and students, together we do the work of young life. And as we benefit from the work of our apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastor teachers, we reach unity. We become mature. We become like Christ then. Then, verse 14, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Pay special attention to verse 16. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As you do your work, we are all built up. It makes me really nervous. It makes me very, very nervous when I, when I see Christians withdraw from fellowship, from regular fellowship, and, ice, and become isolated, sometimes for good reason. But what you want to see is that person become reconnected or connected in another way to God's family. Because we never walk alone. It's not God's way. It is not God's way for you to walk alone. We walk together. Our walking together in unity is essential for our growth towards maturity. Unity is a key to our maturity. We're to be integrated, joined together, supporting each other. And only when each one of you, each one of us does our part, will the body work properly and will receive the support we need. As I conclude, I want to share with you a conversation we had 
with our staff team at Higashinara Baptist Church. We, we asked this question, and the question will appear on the screen. There it is. We sat around as a staff team, and we, we talked about, well, what is it that threatens our unity and our growth to maturity as a church family? What's threatening us? And it's a great question to ask. It's a great question for you to ask of your church family here. You know, what are the blockages that are standing in your way towards, you know, towards living the life worthy of the calling, the calling to be like Christ? What's standing in your way individually and what's standing in your way together as a church family? There are four things that we talked about in our church family. Maybe you have other things to talk about. But there are four things I'd like just to say. Divergent beliefs have great potential to threaten our unity and growth towards maturity. Like the Jews and the Gentiles of the Ephesian church, we've, we come, and we're a Japanese church, but we come from different family backgrounds, and people coming into our family often have very different worldviews and different spiritual beliefs. If we are to be unified, what is it that's going to shape the way we think? It's going to be the teaching of the apostles and prophets. That's what's going to link us. We have to agree with the teaching of the apostles and the prophets found in the Bible. And if a person does not agree with the teachings of the Bible or the apostles and prophets, then that person is not a Christian because they're not following Christ. They're not knowing Christ. They're not agreeing with God's revelation of himself. They're not united with Christ or his body. But as we submit to the teachings of the Bible, we will be unified. The second threat that we thought of is interpersonal relationships. Clearly an important part of this passage, the challenge of interpersonal relationships. Relationships are difficult. And so, let me remind you of what Paul says. As much, as much as it depends on you, it's always easy, isn't it, to point the finger and say, it's her fault or it's his fault. As much as it depends on you, keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That is your responsibility. Be humble, be gentle, be patient and bear with each other in love. Learn to forgive as Christ forgives you. The third thing, what threatens our unity and growth to maturity? Failed leadership. I'm not saying this about you, Claudia. <laughs> but it's true. I've been in churches, I've been in Christian communities in situations where leadership has been toxic and harmful. In this passage, if we look closely, some leaders are described as cunning, crafty, deceitful, the sort of people that Jesus talks about as wolves, wolves in sheep's clothing. How would you recognise a toxic leader or a false teacher, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing? What do they look like? They look like a sheep. <laughs> They look like a Christian. 
They look like a brother and sister. How do you recognize a wolf in sheep's clothing? You listen. You listen to their words and you compare what they say and what they teach with the teachings of the apostles and prophets. You measure their ministry, their lives, against what God has given us. And any pastor or teacher who does not agree with the apostles and prophets is a wolf. There's a fourth thing we talked about, um, probably not in our church at Higashinata, but it's something that I've experienced in church in Australia. Undermining leadership. <laughs> Unfair criticism of leaders. Gossiping and uh, grumbling against leadership for very little reason. Uh, I was in a church in Australia and, and one of the things that we often discussed in our eldership, in our leadership group, wow, we were often addressing the complaints that people were making about the music. <laughs> because everybody has different preferences and likes and dislikes, different styles. We've got to be careful. We've got to be really cautious, I think, all of us, before we criticise others, and especially before we criticise our leaders. Not because we shouldn't be critical in our thinking, or not we should be thoughtful. I mean critical in the best sense. But we need to be cautious before we criticise our leaders because they are God's gift to us for our good, for building us up in unity so that we can relate to one another as Christ has intended. Our leaders are given to us so that we grow in humility and gentleness, patience and tolerance and we need to extend this to our leaders so that when we do speak against a leader or speak against another brother or sister, we speak the truth in love. We just don't speak the truth like a sledgehammer to you know, knock that person off their perch. We speak the truth in love in order to build them up or restore them. It's a good thing to speak the truth, but it has to be done with the motivation of love so that we may all grow to become in every respect the mature body of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for, you, for unifying us together as a family. I pray that you would help uh, this community of the Corbet Union Church to be like Jesus. Each of us needs to reflect on how we can grow in humility and gentleness, patience, how we need to bear with each other in love. Thank you for the gifts of the prophets and apostles that evangelists and pastor teachers. Thank you for the gift of the Bible and our leaders. Help us to work together, link together, join together, that we might build each other up. For our good and your glory, we pray. Amen. Thank you very much, Pastor Brad. It's time for the tithes and the offerings.
um, it's an opportunity where we can give back to God out of what he has blessed us with. During that time, um, Pastor Jeff um, would minister and Camille would minister. Thank you. Your 
Shall we have a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for what you have blessed us with. And we are more thankful that you've given us the opportunity to give back to you, you who are the owner of the earth and all therein. You give us the opportunity to bless you back. It's our prayer that you accept these our offerings and use them to further your purpose in this church, in this city, and beyond, so that praise and thankfulness will flow back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your seats. Our moderator, Bernard, wasn't able to be here this morning, so I will be doing the prayers of the people. Let us pray. Gentle and loving God, we have traveled through many waters to reach this place, but share one baptism. We arrive from different backgrounds and traditions, yet share one faith. We are each of us, unique and precious to God and are members of one body. We have different dreams and doubts, yet our hearts beat with one hope. We are graced with different gifts, so we may offer them in service to one Lord. 